The Nashville Scene is running their annual Best of Nashville Awards, and we need your help to win Best Podcast. Visit www.bestofnashville2021.com. One more time, www.bestofnashville2021.com to cast your ballot now through September 6th. Just click on the Media and Politics category, find Best Podcast, and write in Pitch List. Thanks, everybody. Hey, everybody. Chris Lindsay here, and you're listening to Pitch List. Join us on a deep dive into the heart of what makes writing songs and making music so magical. Let's find out what makes songwriters tick, and along the way, Remember why we love music. Welcome to Pitch List. Hey everybody, I'm Dana, the producer of Pitch List, and with Chris out of town this week, I am super excited to introduce his chat with today's guest. Since his debut in 2013, this artist-writer-musician has established himself as one of Nashville's most beloved and well-respected artists. In addition to his own music, he's played in Vince Gill's band, gotten cuts and played on records for Derek's Bentley, Eric Church, Luke Combs, Casey Musgraves, and many more. But besides being incredibly talented, he's just a super down-to-earth guy and has a lot of wisdom to share. He and Chris have an honest chat about leaning into what matters most in life and ultimately letting that bleed into and become what your art is all about. He has a fantastic new EP called Sugarcane out now. So without any further ado, here's Chris's talk with Charlie Worsham. Good morning. It's a beautiful morning here in Nashville. I've got a really great guest for us today, an incredible musician, writer, artist, Charlie Worsham. Hey, Charlie, how are you, man? Chris, oh, man, I'm loving this day. I'm loving my life right now. It's good to be on with you. Well, thank you for taking your time or letting us have a little bit of your time. Um, I was working on my questions this morning and a little off topic, but I, I wanted to mention it. I think I first became aware of you a few years back from Tom Bukovac. Are you, you, you know Tom well, right? I do. Uh, he's one of my favorite people. Yeah, he... Uh, and as a matter of fact, homeschooling helped get me through the pandemic. It was Leslie Jordan's Instagram and Book's YouTube post. That, like, that got us through. <laughs> I, ag- I agree 100%, man. And uh, Tom walked in one day. We were working on something out here, and he walked in. He's like, hey, have you, have you heard this Charlie Worsham kid? And I was like, uh, no. I mean, he's like, he's incredible. And... Uh, oh. Uh, and I really, I remember diving right in and finding some stuff, not as easy to find stuff back then as it is now. Cause I think this was probably 2013, 14, oh, but, yeah. uh, so I've followed you for a long time, man. You're an incredible, uh, like I said, musician and artist. Let's start Thank out you. with this. Cause I, here's uh, some things I learned about you that I didn't know. So you went to Berkeley in Boston. Is that right? I did. Uh, I spent two and a half years there, uh, and Moved to Nashville with basically all my people. I mean, I was one of a couple dozen folks who just happened to be uh, uh, in the Berkeley community from all places around the globe and had 
intentions on making a beeline for Nashville around the same time. I split a Penske truck with my drummer buddy, Steve Sinatra, and uh, we drove down. We booked ourselves a gig at the Kennedy Center, this thing called the Millennium Stage. They put a show on every day. Our buddy Matt flew in because he had already gone from Berkeley to to Atlanta and was playing music in Atlanta. He flew up, met us there. We played the gig, drove the rest of the way. We had a flat tire, <laughs> landed on Villa Place where I moved into the Nashville version of Animal House with my uh, new bandmates at the time uh, in King Billy and proceeded to get my master's in education, ah, so to speak, okay. uh, those first couple years in Nashville. <laughs> That's awesome. I definitely want to talk about it's King Billy, right? That's the band, yeah. Yeah. So that was now, a but let's back up because I'm curious. What was your main instrument at Berkeley? Because I think you are a multi instrumental guy. I think I've. Yeah. But what was your main study of, you know, your focus there? I somehow have always been a utility musician. Part of it is the blessing in disguise of me wanting a guitar so that I could be Keith Richards. And my mom fearing that I would get long hair and tattoos and mm-hmm. live that life or whatever, you know, but yeah. always supporting me. So she's like, well, how about a banjo? We went to Opryland. I saw Mike Snyder play. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's uh, funny. Heck yeah, man. Bring me, bring me aboard the banjo train. But then it was music instead of sports or, you know, soccer and then baseball. It was, it was, all right, banjo. Ooh, could I get a mandolin? Can I, I want to learn to play mandolin? Cause now I'm kind of a bluegrass kid and I picked up fiddle for a little while though. The world is better off with me not playing fiddle. Um, <laughs> and I eventually got around to guitar. So fast forward from those, uh, years that sort of shaped me to being at Berkeley. I was the kid who arrived from Mississippi with a Stratocaster and a Martin D 28, uh, and a fiddle, and a mandolin, and a banjo, and on paper, I was guitar. And okay. on paper, I was a music production and engineering major. Uh, but that's really code for, uh, I think guitar will allow me to just be in the center here, but indulge other things, right. like voice lessons, private voice lessons from uh, Donna McElroy, who uh, actually had sung on a bunch of records I grew up listening to as a session harmony singer for like Patty Loveless, everybody. Uh, she taught me how to breathe as a singer and gave me my first massive leg up as a singer. That happened at Berkeley. Uh, my guitar teacher, Scotty Johnson up there, he was, I loved it because like I, there were some labs. I signed up for a couple of guitar labs and I remember the one that I'd signed up for was like something rock, like pop rock. And day one, we were supposed to, go home with the solo from Crossroads, the Clapton version, and then come back and play it. Well, I'd played that solo my whole life, and I come back the next week, and he's like, your picking pattern is wrong. I was like, peace. I don't, that's not how I play guitar, dude. Like, I'm not here to learn jazz chords that take half the page to write. Like, all due respect to that, but like, I still want a G run to kind of get me going. You know, I want to, I want, I want Lester Flatt's rhythm playing to like make me, sweat a little bit still and so i was also playing banjo in my ensemble class or whatever so i was in the bluegrass band at berkeley uh so i bounced around a lot and the production and engineering what i mean there in terms of it being code for something i wanted keys to the studios man because they would they would wrap the classes it's like seven o'clock or so at night in those studios but you could sign up for practice time so I would sign up for, you know, the midnight to 4 a.m. block, and you go to the Dunkin' across the street, get a jug of coffee, and just stay up all night and record. 
because my God, man, there's an SSL in there and Neumann's. And, and so that to me was the essence of my Berkeley time. And, and I was in those rooms at four in the morning with Eric Massey and Maddie Diaz and all of these folks that I've known since. And still, I mean, gosh, Maddie's singing on my record. This is the first time with Sugarcane, this new EP, that I didn't make my record with Eric Massey. But he's one of my best friends and one of my favorite producers and engineers in town. And we got a lot more records to make together over the years to come. So Berkeley was a a hothouse, man. You know what I mean? It was, it yeah. was, yeah. it was like, let's get these little, these little seedlings good and healthy and then send them out to the great outdoors of Music City. <laughs> That's awesome. That's a great story. And so, and all of you came here to town and have done really well. Um, We've all found our way. Yeah. Uh, well, and, you and know, I mean, there's what was two dozen people is maybe less than a dozen somewhere, you know, mm-hmm. between half a dozen and a dozen, but everybody found their way. Uh, and music still plays a role in our lives, just not for all of us still here in Nashville. But, you know, I've, I've got that sort of like the chip, right? Like, oh, man, you, you're still here after 10 years, and I'm about to get my chip uh, at the end of this month for being here 15 years. And, uh, and those friendships get richer uh, with, with time. Absolutely, they do. Well, let's talk about your um, – let's, let's go back even further. Your early influence. It sounded like you did listen to some country, and you, you grew up in Mississippi, so you – you definitely had to have some R&B, some blues, but tell us about who you liked and who you think sort of formed your musicality as, as a kid. Absolutely. It was a religious almost requirement to watch the CMAs uh, and the ACMs on TV. I was never in need of being pushed to do that. I was cross-legged on the floor, glued to the TV. And I lived for moments like Alan Jackson walking off when they didn't give George Jones a full, you know, he was Mm going to do like a verse and chorus of choices. Like, come on, man, that's the possum. And I loved it. And I loved when Vince Gill sang The Key to Life on that stage, just him and a guitar. And my dad and I would try to pick who was lip syncing and who was playing live. And uh, so that was one channel where I was, you know, taking uh, input. Uh, the radio, you know, my hometown station, B100, is your typical country music station. And I had a, I would get a kick out of Joe Diffie, the Telecasters on the Joe Diffie songs, man, Pickup Man. You know, I thought the mm-hmm. lyrics were fun. And um, that was an, an influence. That was something coming in to my heart and through, through my ears into my heart. Uh, my dad, who was in high school when the Beatles uh, played Ed Sullivan and promptly got the same drum kit as Ringo, uh, who took me to my first rock concert. I sing about it in my song, Hang On To That. Uh, the Pyramid in Memphis, which is now the world's largest Bass Pro Shop. It was Johnny Lang opening for the Stones. And, you know, we were really kind of there to see Charlie Watts and Keith Richards. I mean, Mick Jagger blew us away, too. It was like, how does this guy not stop moving? But uh, it was this seminal experience for me in the Beatles records. And... My parents had a stack of Vince Gill records and George Strait records. I remember counting all their CDs once, and I was like, the two people they have basically the entire discography of are George Strait and Vince Gill. And so those CDs were playing on car trips, and especially trips up to Nashville. I specifically remember the Keith Whitley greatest hits that ends with his sort of work tape of Tell Lori I Love Her. That, wasn't, that was a channel 
I was tuning into. And with that specifically, it was the first time I kind of connected like the real life heartache connection with country and how life and art can sort of overlap. Uh, but there was also the Mississippi Delta 20 miles west of me. Uh, and BB, when I finally got an electric guitar, it was BB King who was my first teacher. It was his records because you'd hear it and go, Well, I can play that. And then you try to bend a note like BB. I mean, when you hear my song Sugarcane and I'm playing the 335, I'm trying to be BB, you know, with mm -hmm. all these other overlaps. And a lot of the other songs on the EP, I'm trying to be Steve Gaines. I was a huge Skinner fan. I, I, Skinner's one of my all time favorites. Uh, and later, I got to really understand that all these records I loved, these really funky records were made in Memphis at Stax or over at Muscle Shoals. And so I developed over time and continue to develop over time an appreciation of this sense of place growing up in Mississippi. I have to say that my North Star has always been Vince, uh, Vince Gilb. And we went to see him in concert probably 10 times. Wow. Uh, wow. And he continues to be uh, someone I call and he's one of my first calls when I need advice and uh, the craziest part of that being I would stand up you know and watch that concert from whatever seat we were at in the in the venue and dream of either being Vince in the spotlight or being one of those people on stage because with Vince and my father sitting next to me uh, it wasn't just man that's Vince it's like that's a that's a Fender Stratocaster that Telecaster is his number one guitar you know he Da, da, da. And then it was like, that's John Huey on steel guitar and uh, all these things. And then fast forward to 2019, I'm playing in Vince's band and I'm like hearing these stories, but from the mouth of my hero and the bandmates, it's a pretty wild thing, you know? Yeah, that had to be a full circle moment for you. Uh, to play Absolutely. with Vince Gill. Did your, is your father still with us? Could he, did he get to go see you do that? He is. He is still with us. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, you know, it's crazy. My dad has hung with Vince a good bit now, you know, at the Opry dressing rooms or out on the road. My parents have come to see me play with him. Because I have to tell you, you know, on this Zoom screen talking to you, the drum kit behind me, that's my dad's drum kit. Wow. Uh, he, he sold the Ringo kit, but he got this old Rogers kit, which is killer. And that's my first memory of music is sitting in his lap banging on the drums you know and I have to also credit my mom because she drove me to banjo lessons and I didn't mention this but you know the other two influences were the bands I played in and being a bluegrass kid I mean it was Jimmy Martin man that, mm -hmm. that just got me going and Marty Stewart and knowing that he was a bluegrasser in addition to being the guy playing Tempted on the radio uh, and then high school I was in a bar band we played Top 40 I mean we play Huey Lewis in the news and then we play Weezer Hashpipe next you know <laughs> and that was the first time I started singing in public really fantastic um, and so let's talk about this so you moved to Nashville you're coming out of uh, now you are recording at Berkeley and I'm sure you're recording stuff you wrote um, mm -hmm. Did you immediately jump into the writing pool when you moved to Nashville? Talk, talk to us about that. Had you been writing on your own? Was collaborating new to you? How did that all work for you and, and what did yeah. you think? I didn't know it at the time, but what got me started being a songwriter was coming to Nashville at age 13 and making a bluegrass record. I had just played on the Opry and had been introduced to the guys in Mike Snyder's band. It was Charlie Cushman and uh, Bobby Clark. Blake Williams was the bass player. 
Brian Sutton, yep. Uncle Josh Graves, Bobby Hicks, and me making a record in Bobby's house on a two-inch tape machine, and I'm sitting there in between the songs hearing Josh Graves tell stories about Flat and Scruggs days. And that was thanks to my mom. You know, she she was sort of like, hey, you're taking this seriously, and as long as you are, like, why don't you make a record? And so I saw that two-inch tape machine, and I got the fever for recording gear. Mm-hmm. And it just so happened a few years later, we I was introduced to Norbert Putnam, who had married a Grenada girl, and it set up shop with a Mackie digital console uh, and 24-track recorder and uh, took me under his wing, taught me a lot, hipped me to some good cheap mics. And basically, when he got tired of whatever rig he had, he, he sold me his rig for next to nothing. Wow. And, uh, and so there I was, a high school kid playing in bars on the weekend, only job I've ever had, and is a really good job in high school. I even spotted my biology teacher once in the bar, and I think she was mortified. <laughs> um, but uh, I was recording then on weeknights and stuff at the house, and what got me writing songs, I ran out of material. Uh, well, I got to write songs. So I made a record in the backyard, basically, you know, on, on that gear that Norbert uh, allowed me to uh, acquire. And uh, on that record were my first efforts as a songwriter. It's worth mentioning the first two songs were Come to Trish's Barbershop and Cross Country Seed, which I sold each one for like 150 bucks to some local businesses and heard them on B100 on the radio station. So when I moved to Berkeley, or to Boston to go to Berkeley, one of those interests that wasn't on paper for me but was something important was getting in the songwriting classes. And I really started to take songwriting seriously. And so I moved to Nashville, uh, early because of this, I'd been making trips to Nashville, uh, to get to know writers and players stumbled into some buddies that I'd, I'd even met like when we were 11 playing in a bluegrass jam. And they were like, we're in this band King Billy and this guy just dropped out. You want to be in the band? We got a, a publishing deal. So I moved to Nashville right around turning 21 join a band, sign a pub deal, and now I'm writing in co-writes. And so it was a real natural progression. Just I fell into it by accident the whole way. Wow. That's a crazy story. Now, I've seen some names, I think. Tell us who was in King Billy. So uh, lead singer, Donnie Fallgator. Uh, drummer, Kevin Weaver. Mm-hmm. Uh, bass player, Matt Utterback, who was the same bass player I mentioned that was living in Atlanta uh, and my buddy Steve and I we were like, dude, we're driving to Nashville, fly up to DC and play a gig with us. And me and Matt and Steve had a little thing, a little group on the side for fun. And we convinced Matt when another member of King Billy had, had left, like, Hey, we need a bass player. The dining room in our band house is open. We can cover up the doors and you can live there for 300 bucks a month, you know? And he moved and he, he lived in the house and joined the band uh, and then across the street from that house were John and TJ Osborne, and John was in the band playing guitar, and wow. TJ was around. He was driving the tractor trailer for Phil Vassar. Uh, wow. But on the download, he was writing songs and singing the fire out of them because we'd have these jam sessions late at night, and it was just, oh, my gosh, dude, like, your voice. And eventually, you know, they figured out they were the brothers Osborne, and I have some really fun recordings because I always kept my rig, uh, 
and did some work tapes for them. And they, I don't even think they knew it at the time, but it was like, y'all are a duo. But then to round out the band, a guy named Josh Matheny, who's a ridiculously talented dobro player, lap steel player, uh, bluegrasser. He was my buddy I'd met at a bluegrass jam that was the, my entryway. He picked me up my first time landing at B&A and drove me around and uh, introduced me to folks. And he's a great singer and songwriter too. But everybody... Everybody's here doing doing something. Wow. And wh- at what point in all this did you decide that, or maybe you always knew that you wanted to be a solo artist? I've, I think that I've always deep down had it. I don't think I ever d- went without it. But, you know, I didn't sing until I was in this bar band and we'd have to do four sets a night. And so I kind of sang out of necessity. I didn't write until I ran out of songs to record. So I started writing out of necessity. Uh, then I fell in love with those things. And I was still figuring that out for myself when I joined the band. Uh, but deep down, I knew in the in the core of my being, like, I, I want to be the star. And there was actually a song that we recorded on this album that King Billy did with uh, Chuck Ainley, actually. Uh, and there was a song I had co-written, and I sing high. And it was the, the we had recorded it a, a step too high. And I, was, <laughs> and I kept telling the producers, like, dude, just let me sing it. And he's like, you're the utility harmony singer guy. You know, I, I got him for the, you know, and got in a little spat there. Um, but I don't know that I would have made the leap had fate not intervened. And how fate intervened was uh, the band was up for a pub renegotiation and uh, some things had kind of gone down with one of the people in our core team, our producer dude, and um, it wasn't sitting right with me. And I wanted to stay with the band, but I didn't want to sign that document because I also took a music business course at Berkeley like, Hey man, if the band breaks up and they like you and they want you, they can still hold you for four more years as a solo writer. It's collectively and individually is a is a real phrase. <laughs> and I didn't want to I didn't want to potentially when I saw things happening in the band that uh, I didn't it wasn't the band it was outside of the band surrounding the band that I didn't necessarily agree with. Uh, I didn't want to potentially lock myself in and. So I was like, I, I want to be in the band, but I, I can't sign this pub deal. But it, it, I had to be in the pub deal to stay in the band. And it wasn't a bad pub deal or anything. It just it didn't sit right with me. And so I kind of got pushed off that cliff ledge, and uh, there I was. I moved back in to my parents had bought a condo down in Whitebridge, and my mom had taken a job teaching in Williamson County. I moved in with my mom. And uh, I called Tom Bukovac and said, man, I really need to play sessions to get some money so I can pay some rent so I can, you know, do this thing and move out from my mom. I meet Arturo Buenahora. A few months later, I'd signed a pub deal with him. Um, and Buk was good to his word. He, he helped me out, got me on some sessions. And at the time, he threw me in some rooms that I maybe wasn't quite ready for. And in a very graceful way, would pull me aside and be like, "Hey, man, don't you think that guitar is ready for new strings? Don't you, you want to check your tuning? You may, maybe get a different tuner. That that boss tuner you can throw in the lake, you know." And so he he helped me get my earn my wings as a session player. 
Well, I'm not surprised. He's such a great guy. So he brought you in on sessions that he he was already on. That's and, right. And, and in doing so, introduced me to the community and more calls came. That's a great story. So I want to kind of go back. You, I'm sure it was uh, bittersweet, maybe not even bittersweet. It was difficult for you to turn that deal down, although in your heart it wasn't right. But you didn't have another deal to go to, but you jumped off anyway, and it ended yeah. up opening you up. It opened you up for Arthur to sign you. That's and right. then probably take off your whole career. And it started out looking dicey, right? Well, I mean, yeah, when you're, you know, uh, out there doing your thing, you come home from a session or you go meet up with a buddy at the bar and like you walk in the door and there you're living with your mom. Uh, it's not the, you know, I would, because the band lived right across, right one block from Music Row and I would run. I would go for runs up and down Music Row and I would daydream. I was like, I'm going to buy that building. I'm going to own that building when I get my 10th number one. I practice my acceptance speech for the CMA Entertainer of the Year. And because you kind of have to have a little bit of that mindset, I think, to to stand oh, in absolutely. the arena. You know, it's, they call it uh, visual. It's visualization. It's visualization. Olympic, Olympic athletes use it. High performing anyone trying to do, you know, like a high performance career visualization is like incredible. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it is great tool. It's a critical part of, of, uh, surviving and thriving in, in our world. Uh, so, you know, it was, it was a little bit tough at that moment to, to stand in the bathroom mirror and be like, ah, I'm good. Cause I thought by 24, I would have all these hits. I thought, what I really thought was going to happen was King Billy was going to explode, be this massive band. I would start making solo records on the side, and then that would take off. And by thirty-five, I, you know, would have been a part of the greatest band in country music history, and then had my own crazy successful solo career. And uh, and and it didn't happen that way. But thank God it didn't, because I had a lot left to learn uh, to be ready for uh, standing in that arena which I'm still standing in. And to me, shoot, man, that's half the battle. <laughs> I agree. I think it's more than half the battle. I, I say it all the time. It's like, as long as you're still standing, you're still fighting, you, you can win. You know, it only takes one hit. For, for a writer like me, it takes one hit. For an artist like you, one big hit and you're off and running. I mean, it's, it's that close at all times, you know? That's right. And when you write that song, you've printed a lottery ticket and that, Ticket might not cash itself in for seven years, like House That Built Me. Yep. Um, or you might be Don Schlitz, and it might cash itself in twice with, uh, you know, the gambler. I learned this, and it blew my mind, but it had been recorded by Bobby Bear and by Johnny Cash, and, like, wow. nothing happened. And it's a f sort of famous story now. You probably know it. I, uh, don't, I don't know that I've heard it. Well, he was... So Don Schlitz... Yep. I think one person in town would take meetings with him at this point, and to pay the bills, he was working the overnight shift at the Vanderbilt Computer Lab when the computers took up whole rooms. But he was writing songs during the day, and he was tired. He, was, he wasn't getting much sleep, so he kept falling asleep on the job, and he got this letter uh, from his boss at Vanderbilt saying, man, if you fall asleep one more time, you're fired. And right around that same time, his phone rang and said, man... 
Kenny Rogers has cut the gambler, you know, after it had been cut twice by two massive country music stars, both Hall of Famers. And uh and then his world changed. You know, like you said, man, it only takes that one. And and uh so I'm a I'm a far sight better than getting fired from the overnight computer lab shift at Vanderbilt. Um and had I had that hit right out out of the gate, mm-hmm. I would not have had the past ten years of mental health, you know, counseling from Porter's Call, this great organization in town uh, that offers free counseling to to recording artists. And probably wouldn't have met my wife. Probably wouldn't get to be a dad, and much less be a dad that gets to be around for these precious early years, uh, early days with my son and. And I wouldn't have had the chance to play on all these records and go on all these tours and, and be in Vince's band, be in Old Crow for a year, and and not just have that experience, but glean the wisdom from that experience. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I'm just now ready to have a hit. <laughs> you know, wow. it's like, because having a hit is like you're, you're, you're getting handed keys to a Maserati. And it's like, dude, you should probably drive a Camry for a few years before you crank that bad boy up. What a great metaphor. It's true. And, you know, you and I could probably list, we won't do it, names of people who came to town and really, you know, fired off a couple of hits quick. And it's it's devastating. I've seen it happen a couple of times where then all of a sudden people aren't cutting their songs and they're they're mad about it and they get ugly with people about it. They started driving that that Maserati right away and then pretty quick they were crashing it and not knowing it. Yes. Success is as stressful as failure. Oh, yeah. Don't go away. Pitch List will be right back after the break. Hey, Pitch List listeners. We are so excited to announce our new summer song contest. You have until August 31st to post an original song to your Instagram feed for the chance to win your very own interview on an episode of Pitch List. Plus, some official merchandise, and some one-on-one song feedback from Chris. That's me. All the details and rules are on our website and our social media platforms. So enter today. You know, I witnessed that because uh, I was going to say, man, it can make you want to put your fist through this town to quote my own song. Uh, but, you know, where that song of mine comes from is is seeing up close uh all of that uh in 2014 i was stuck between a 15 minute sam hunt set and a kip Moore headlining set and i had 45 minutes on stage and believe you me and you and i can relate to this it's like i'd much rather play 45 minutes than 15 minutes there's nothing for a player more aggravating than waiting all day to get on that stage and you only get like three four songs like give me a break man um but we booked the tour at a time when I was launching my second single. Sam w- was launching his first. And in the interim, I mean, we're talking six months, nine months maybe, my record died, he blew up, and the arrangement for the tour stayed the same. And that was hard for me. That was hard for Sam. It was probably hard for Kip. It was certainly hard for the audience every night because they didn't know that all of this had been arranged before. And, and nobody knows when you book a tour that that sometimes happens. And um, yeah, I felt bad for myself and I got really angry in that season of life. 
But looking back, I think it was probably equally difficult for Sam. Here he is, Elvis, and he gets 15 minutes a night. And here are the fans going, who is this Yahoo? You know, we want Sam Hunt. Like, we bought this ticket to see Sam and Kip. I don't know who Charlie is. And that taught me so much, so much going through that and now looking back on it and realizing, like, okay, okay. That's so interesting. I have never heard a story like that. So I guess, and I'm sure everyone listening would also, I'm assuming they would have adjusted your lineup based on what was happening with Sam. I mean, he had a pretty, an amazing, uh, he took off like a rocket, you know? And it seems right. like, why Why would they not? I mean, I'm not saying, I'm not I, making a judgment, but it seems like, you know, even, it probably even, like you said, it probably even put pressure on Kip, you know? To sort it, was a, it, was a, it was a strange thing for everyone involved. And, I, you know, I, I don't think we'll ever know why. It, it may have honestly been so close to the tour happening and so much was moving pieces were in place. I'm sure contracts had been signed. Uh, okay. It stayed, stayed the way it was. Uh, but again, it goes back to every night, the fans had no way of knowing that. And, and looking back, as much as I want to play 45 minutes, I probably could have won a lot more fans had I been the first guy. Right. So I'm like, oh, who's this? Oh, cool. You know, but I'm still looking forward. But I felt I felt like the fans thought it was me taking Sam from them, you know. Oh. And that wasn't fair to them. But it didn't stop me from taking it out on myself and my band and them. And it's a really it was a really low it was a low point for me. And it was when that was when all of the porters call and counseling started to really kick in. It got me to where I went to on site a year or two after that. And uh, and gain some perspective and some some gratitude, uh, and I mean, look, I when I signed at Warner, there were all these other folks on the roster, and they were having hits. And today, if I look at who was on the roster when I signed in I think 2011, and who's still on the roster, the only three people still on the roster are me, Brett Eldridge, and Blake Shelton. Wow! And wow. I don't have a number one hit yet that i know of uh a lot of those folks did and it speaks to your your point you know and this really is a marathon and a a, a hit song is great it's it's the golden ticket you know but it's a roller coaster ride and especially if you get that hit and you're not maybe ready for it or it's not exactly who you are and then for every show the rest of your life you have to go out and sing that that's a number on, yep. on the heart and it also seems like uh that is also testimony warner really believes in you that's why you're on that that's why you're on that and let's go back i think it's important and you talk about this as much as you want to but on site i've read a little bit about it that's like a do you do you live out there it's it's right outside oh, Nashville, yeah. right I'm all about talking. Okay, great. Because I've I, had I believe, friends that just rave about their experience there. Yeah, I believe every adult should go to Graceland, and yep. then every adult should go to Onsite. <laughs> wow. Uh, for actually similar reasons, but um, you go to this beautiful uh, compound way out. It's probably 45 minutes from Nashville, out in the country, and there's a horse pasture and a nature trail and there's sort of a main house that has some incredible cooking, like uh, really good food. 
uh, and these cabins where you you bunk up with with roommates and you walk and they have a main building where there's a gathering space and then smaller spaces and each uh, they're sort of one on site one on one is a thing called living center program and it's I think six days maybe so you walk into the main area you give them your papers because you fill out a bunch of stuff before you go. And it's it's six months of therapy in a week. You check your phone at the door. You don't see it till you leave. You are only known by your first name and you are not allowed to talk about what you do for a living. And think about that. For like for a guy who has only ever done music since I struck out at T-Ball, it's, it's, it's such a massive part of my identity. I can't talk about gigs. I can't talk about you know, well, this tour wasn't fair, man. I had to, I had to talk about it in terms of the heart and, and me as a person. And you're grouped with they, they figure out all the people who are in your particular session out of maybe fifty, and they pair you with a group into a group of ten that they feel like is going to be really compatible. And you do big group stuff in the morning, and then you break off into your small group. And each small group has one of the world's greatest uh, mental health professionals kind of walking you through and what you really do is you spend six days reconnecting with your inner child and grabbing them by the hand and saying hey buddy I got you now you know uh, I'm not gonna let go because everyone in life gets kicked out of Eden and it usually happens in childhood it may be a big trauma it may be a small trauma but big and small trauma have the same shape and the better you can know yourself and know this, know your family of origin, the better you can understand what happened when your younger self got kicked out of Eden. And we need that inner child, especially you and I, because to yeah. be creative, uh, I mean, that's that's what kids do better than us. I'm seeing that with my four-month-old right now. I'm like, dang, Gabe, <laughs> mm-hmm. give me some of that sense of wonder, man. I need that. And so you reconnect with that. And you, you leave much healthier. That's fantastic. I love that. Kicked out of Eden. Yeah, I know all of music, writing too. I mean, it is about getting back to that place where you kind of leave all that stuff at the door of being an adult and responsibility. And we're really, it's not, it's just getting away from that so that you can let the other thing happen that was so easy when you were five. The, your imagination and I also think not to talk too much but uh, I, love it. I, I had a conversation with my wife this morning and people talk about this but I think it's important social media for kids and these smartphones that are they're just attached to like you know really uh cyborgs really with with these machines it is it is killing imagination so they are spending zero time with their imagination and that I think for a child is just horrible that they're not developing their sense of imagination look a big reason why i can walk onto any stage in front of any audience and stand tall and strut is because i had a sony walkman with foam headphones Mm -hmm. and a cassette of marty stewart's this one's gonna hurt you and i would walk into the woods behind my house pick up the best guitar shaped stick i could find (laughs) close my eyes and there I was, I was Marty, you know, you're, you're right. And I think too, the other thing with social media that's so detrimental to us all, but especially those of us in the creative world is 
you know, admiration is not equal to love, you know, and we already have a chart system that makes every day in the music industry a cold day in the locker room and add to that who's getting more likes, who's getting more views. It, it's, it gets really unhealthy really quickly and can lead one to believe their value is tied to how many people double tap that screen and that is no way to be. I was yeah. I I am who I am because I grew up in the woods, man. You know, and yeah. if I was in front of a screen, we were often a family watching the CMA Awards together and talking about it. And commercial breaks, think about that. You know, it's the same with recording. Mm-hmm. Like one of the best things to me about analog recording is rewind time. You only get one or two shots, man, and then you're gonna have to wait and spin the thing back. And you can't really do that too often or too much because then you're gonna wear that tape down. And it's funny working with Jay Joyce on this Sugarcane EP. I mean, he talked about it so much. He he had me in the rehearsal room for two days with the band before we ever went in the studio. And he was like, man, you never screw up when you're on the late night show. You, you, you play a gig and you make a wrong note, but you turn it into something cool because you're in the middle of a show. You're not going to go back and redo it. And analog, whether you're talking recording to tape or ditching the phone for a set number of hours a day, it it plugs you back into that that presence like man i get i got to make this thing count i boy i couldn't agree more and um it makes people focus like as soon as you push red whatever you had down before is gone right yeah. so you better be doing something better than that or you're going to have a problem and the beauty of committing to say and this is this happened and when we cut to pro tools but on the sugarcane EP on the title track. It's one of my favorite moments in all of these six songs. I am, it's at the end of the first chorus and I play a guitar lick and it's from singing and playing it live with the band on the floor. I go, and I slide down to the wrong note, but I bend it up. And immediately in my head, and it's funny too, because John Osborne called me. I borrowed an amp from him for that record and uh he's like hey man you're gonna have so much fun with jay it's gonna be great i just want to tell you now at some point you're gonna make a mistake and you're gonna want to go back and fix it but jay's gonna shut you down he said just just laugh it off roll with it he'll be right and thank god that john had that conversation because i might have gotten all jay i gotta fix this i gotta fix this and I've hit the wrong note, and I knew when I hit it, I was like, this is this is what John was talking about. And sure enough, Jay was like, oh, that's the coolest thing you've played. And uh, and it's in there. And not only is it in there, I overdub an acoustic, and the acoustic answers, and you can hear me laughing because I'm just like, this is cool. So you can commit to the humanity, and you know, like that right. might right. that solo might have a wrong note in it, but man, people are sitting next to you on the roller coaster ride of that they can feel you like chasing this thing through the woods and yeah you got scratched by a vine going through the woods chasing this thing but you ran through the woods like that's exhilarating and you can't play 50 takes of a guitar solo and get that same thing yeah and i've noticed a lot of singers guitar players would do it too on a solo you know where they're just looking, you know, if you're producing, you've got to watch a singer because they will go and go and go and they want every little thing perfect. And very quickly, you've just beat the life right out of it. You know, a great live performance could have sharp notes 
it could have little like you said it makes it more human those are great advice that you're giving people man well let's let's move on um and i really appreciate and i think everyone listen listening will appreciate you sharing with with us about about your time um but I do want to lift us up because I'm really excited yeah. for you about your EP Sugarcane. Yeah, so uh, I put out a record in I think 2012 or 13 uh, on Warner, my first full length from them called Rubber Band. Right. Put a second record out 2017 uh, called Beginning of Things, and all that we just talked about, you know, Rubber Band is sort of the story of that. It's my first time getting on the 10-lane interstate of the music industry and trying to figure it out. And there was a lot of heartbreak there when it didn't perform commercially like I wanted it to. Uh, made the second record and had had a little bit of help. So still felt the disappointment, but things had moved in my heart. And one thing that had changed was I was dating this girl when Beginning of Things came out. And it was it was a different kind of tug. And part of it was I had gotten myself to this place of perspective. Uh, and part of it was just her and her 10,000-watt mm-hmm. soul that just kind of sucks you into a good place, you know. And uh, album's out. That same week, this is 2017, beginning of things, that same week, my manager quits management, my publisher fires me, and I owe him 10 copyrights still, and I'm at the station inn doing the album release, and I can just tell, I can already feel it, you know, our single, air quotes, uh, was like over four minutes with like a 45 second intro, like I should have known, the, and I kind of did, my gut knew, so like, well, here we go again, and then I look over at Kristen and I'm like, well, this over here seems to just happen whether I want it to or not, but I somehow still make music. This woman over here is an opportunity to build my life around more than just that. And um, and so I leave that gig at the station in, tell her I love her for the first time, go on the road with Brandy Clark, I'm writing to get out of my deal, I write the first song that ends up on the EP. It's track two, For the Love. I write it by myself in a fluorescent flickering, stale beer smelling dressing room somewhere in the Carolinas. I don't even think anything of it because I've still got to catch up on my other nine copyrights, but I'm sitting down with Chris Lacey and I play her what I've been writing. Almost don't play her that song. And she hears it and she flips. She's like, that. More of this, please. Oh my gosh. And don't let George Strait's people hear it because he'll cut it. And something tells me he probably wouldn't have cut it, but <laughs> but hey, whatever. It he was great have, to see that. He might have. He might have. You never know. But it was great to see that reaction from Chris. And on a song that A, I'd written by myself, B, I'd written kind of under duress, not even thinking about. But it's a song about reminding myself and reminding ourselves, you know, why we do what we do. And the the heart of that song is in the verse about my dad who made a career as a banker but was always my dad the drummer you know and mm-hmm. my dad in a suit and tie to me isn't isn't as much my dad as when he's sitting behind that drum kit and that's where we connect and and him saying to me you know all of these pieces of wisdom like man you're doing what you love do that like hey this girl hang on to her hang on to that like that's another song that landed on this ep called hang on to that i wrote with jeff Steele and adam james and uh and so i started writing more and more personal stuff 
I started writing songs to try to get Kristen to laugh or make her think I was sexy. I wasn't thinking about is how's this going to play on the charts? How's Chris Lacey going to hear this? I was just, I was writing for for this woman I love that I'd bought a ring to ask her to marry me and all these things. And so the story of the Sugarcane EP is it catches people up. If people know about me and, and remember Rubber Band, maybe they don't even, they may not even know I put out a second album with Beginning of Things. Um, but it catches them up where they last probably saw me on tour, following Sam Hunt, opening for Kip Moore. Angry, fist through this town me. And, uh, and then it gets them all the way to the beaches of Costa Rica. I'm on my honeymoon. And that's the other song, Sugarcane, the title track that I wrote by myself. And I, I actually brought, I don't know how smart this is, so don't take this as advice, but I brought the guitar. I brought a guitar, nylon string guitar on my honeymoon. I only played it for five minutes, you know, the whole time. But the music for Sugarcane is what fell out when I did. And on the flight back, I was thinking about our last day there, and we had done this farm tour on a mountainside. And rode horses and saw the cows and ate the cheese and saw the chickens, all this. But we cranked out. They let you take this hand crank and and crush a strip of sugar cane, and then you drink the sugar cane juice, and they talk about all the things they make with it. And all of that was swirling in my head. On the flight back, I start jotting lyrics down, and then I'm just trying to make Kristen laugh the next couple nights, and this song turns into something. And so to go from fifth through this town to sugar cane, with the thread of truth being that song for the love. And then all of these little vignettes in between, like hang on to that, talks about our first date and about my first rock concert my dad took me to, you know, the Rolling Stones thing and the Pac-Man table at Mickey's on Gallatin and and uh, Half Drunk, which is this story about me telling her I love her outside the Station Inn and a song called Believe in Love, which is uh, in many ways I think about saying my wedding vows when I sing that song because it is sort of my statement of, this is why I believe in love. These are the people that raised me, you know, my my papa and my mom and dad and, you know, why I love dogs and good songs and hard work and I have a healthy relationship with God that could have been a unhealthy relationship with God because there's a lot of shame sometimes in, in that upbringing where I grew up. Um, and my mom spared me that, you know, and, but then here's this woman I love and here's what I believe is going to happen but the most important thing we'll ever do is raise babies and our story will outlive us. So it's my, it's my wedding vow and a song, you know? And so little vignettes and then getting from that dark night of the soul to the hero has slayed the dragon and he's chilling on a beach. Amazing. And you know, I hear the story a lot on the podcast when people, you know, different things. Yours is more like a like a song as a function to describe what's going on in your life. But I think the reason that works is when you're honest about your feelings and your specific life, that resonates with other people because we're all very much the same on, on, on these kind of issues of love and family. And I agree with you 150%. The things that matter are your wife and your children, your family. You know, careers go up and down. Uh, at some point, if we live long enough, you'll be a, even even the biggest star in the business will be an old guy who kids go, who's that? And they'll say, that's Tim McGraw. And they'll go, who? You know, that's it. That's yeah. how it works. Now, if if when my funeral happens and people are crying and my children are all there and I had love in my life, 
that's going to have so much more meaning than anything I could have done in my career. And I think it's great that, that you say that because it's so easy to get caught up in your career or trying to make it or all those things, you know? Absolutely. And, and as much as, you know, when I share how I got to this place, it's through this not very typical journey of the music business. Right. But but it's it applies to anybody. It especially applies, I think about all the people who grew up in a smaller town like I right. did. Um, and maybe they stayed there and maybe they went through some crazy stuff, you know, but maybe they got in the car and said, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to move to this city and I'm going to start something over for myself and I'm going to chase this thing down. And it doesn't matter what that thing is. You're still having that season of waiting tables and a crummy apartment and, and all of that applies. You don't have to have this music career side of it. And, And you're right, man, I'm singing from this, place of me as a human being and and not what I do um there's a lot less reference actually to me being a guitar player I mean I remember on rubber band like having a conversation with Chris Lacey there was I think a song I wanted to record for the album but it was like yet another song about well I play guitar and I'll sing the song you know there's there's maybe one or two references of that in in sugarcane I think the only one I can think of is one verse of for the love um Mm -hmm. Everything else is people stuff. It's it's great. And you have an interesting story. And you are right. It's not the typical story. I think your musicianship sort of launched you into this world quicker than most people get there as an artist. But as part of the course, you may have come in quicker and stronger, but you still had your rocky road that, like you said, you know, when things weren't going, ex- even though you were in a enviable situation it also goes to show that there's still struggle and there's still like you said success can be as stressful as failure it really can but man i think everyone listening myself included is just really excited to sort of see where you develop as an artist and and how it's how you you know where you're going next and i i have a really i have a really strong feeling that even though you seem to be transformed as an individual, those things that you originally strive for are going to happen for you. And you're going to be a whole human when they do, just like you said. And I think it's fantastic, man. So well, I really thank do. You, Chris. Thank you. I, you know, I believe it too. And uh, I love being on the scenic route to stardom. And so far, <laughs> That's it's good. way cooler than what I originally planned. Yeah. And uh, so I'm, well, I'm all about it. And also, just to point out for everyone listening, you also have an incredibly positive attitude. You know, life, you know, however you think life is, that's how it is, you know? And you have a great attitude, man. Well, everybody, listen, go check out uh, Sugarcane as soon as we get all the tracks. Are all the tracks out now on Spotify and everywhere, all six? All six are out now, and the the goal is to go back in with Jay before the end of the year and do another six, and uh, I'm so excited for, for that as well. But meanwhile, it's great to have some stuff out there that's new for everybody uh, who isn't in this sort of inside world. 
uh, even if the songs are some of them four years old, they're they're new to the world, so it's it's fun having awesome. Them so we'll all go check out your uh, current state at six tracks, expecting more. And uh, what about touring? Do you have anything lined up for that? Can people come out and see you places, or how's that? You know, looking? I have a I have a handful of things on the books, not a ton right now. It's such a a bottleneck. Yeah, uh, and where I really feel like I actually at this point have the strongest draw in terms of being able to sell tickets is across the pond and we're still not quite where you know right right we're out of the woods enough to to plan that but the fun thing that's happening and this is why I would do what I don't normally do and plug my social media uh including TikTok I'm actually a pretty good TikToker believe it or not or not um but what is happening is last weekend I jumped out on the road with Cadillac 3 just to write with the guys. Oh, great. Yeah. And I ended up jumping on stage with them every night. And part of this journey, I've got all these buddies, you know, I've backed mm-hmm. up or played on records with. And I have a sneaking suspicion I'll make some last minute appearances because I'm on the bus with somebody. Uh, and more will come. But I, I probably won't be touring my own shows heavily until next year. Um, and I'm okay with that too because uh, four to eight months is a really important stretch for a little kid and getting to be here for more of that is not a bad thing. Absolutely. And your wife will very much appreciate you being home during this period when no one's sleeping very much. Oh yeah. Yeah, man. (laughs) It's it's a, it's it's a wild ride, but I wouldn't have it any other way. Charlie, thank you so much for being on pitch list, man. I think it's, it's just a great to get to know you. I'm glad that the listeners can get to know you and follow you and what you're doing. So thank you for being on the show. This is uh, Charlie Worsham on pitch list with Chris Lindsay. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for listening to this episode of pitch list produced in partnership with the American songwriter podcast network. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcast or your preferred listening platform. And if you want, feel free to leave us a five-star rating and review. For exclusive content from this week's guest and more, you can visit our website at pitchlistpodcast.com or follow our social media pages on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. To hear songs written and or recorded by today's guest, Check out this week's playlist by finding us on Spotify at Pitch List Podcast. Plus, don't forget to let us know on social media what songwriter, musician, or music business professional you want to hear from next. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. Pitch List.